Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. I am Johanna Schön, co-host of New Books in Gender and Sexuality Studies, part of the New Books Network. Thanks for joining us. In August of 2009, the South African runner Castor Semenya won the 800-meter final in the World Championship leading by one minute. Muscles bulging and triumphant hand aloft, the news reported, she crossed the line way ahead of the rest of the field and ran straight into accusations that she was far too strong too fast, and to be blunt, too masculine to be a woman. The International Association of Athletics Federation requested that Semenya undergo gender testing. For months, Semenya and the IAAF awaited reports from a gynecologist, an endocrinologist, a psychologist, an internal medicine specialist, and an expert on gender. When the results were finally released, news headlines ranged from Castro Semenya is a hermaphrodite with no womb or ovaries in the Sydney Daily Telegraph to Salon.com's claim that Castro Semenya is not a hermaphrodite but intersex. The news must have come as a shock to Semenya. Today we are going to talk to Elizabeth Rees, author of Bodies in Doubt, an American history of intersex, which came out with Johns Hopkins University Press in 2009. A women's and gender studies scholar and a historian at the University of Oregon, Reese tells us about the history of those who are of ambiguous sex. From early America, when people looked at doubtful bodies as bodies that created legal and religious concerns, to the 19th century when physicians began to take over the classification and management of bodies lacking a clear gender identity. This is a remarkable book, and we are glad to have Elizabeth Rees on our show today. Good morning. Uh, today, we are going to talk to Elizabeth Rees about her new book, Bodies in Doubt, an American History of Intersex, which came out with John Hopkins University Press in 2009. Hi, Lizzie. It's such a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you for talking to me about my book. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I have to say to our listeners that I'm a huge fan of your work and I can recommend Bodies and Doubt very highly as well as everything else. Um, and I think maybe we can start this interview by you just starting to tell a little bit about yourself um, and also a little bit about the project Bodies and Doubt and how you got to write this book. Okay, I get asked this, pro- this question a lot and it always makes me think that I wish that I could come up with a seamless trajectory from my first book, which was about the Salem witchcraft trials in 1692 in Salem, Massachusetts, to this project, which is, you know, about uh, ambiguous genitalia and medical interventions on atypical bodies. Because the project seems so completely different that a lot of people ask me, oh, my gosh, how'd you get from that to this? Um but I really don't have a good answer for this. Other than that, uh, in in retrospect, maybe what I'm interested in is um, 
kind of ideal uh, prescriptions for womanhood and prescriptions for manhood and, you know, what the ideals are supposed to be and what the realities really are. So in, uh, in Damned Women, my first book, um, women who were accused of witchcraft in one way or another were not fitting that ideal prescription of Puritan womanhood. And those ideals were kind of recreated during the trials and, and, um, you know, kind of uh, put in place a little bit. And with Bodies in Doubt, in, th- in this book, I'm really looking at what were the definitions of manhood, womanhood, masculinity, femininity, all these things were kind of bound up together, of course, in a mm-hmm. completely different context because it wasn't in a religious realm here, um, but it was in the medical realm. But really, I'm looking at what were those uh, cultural ideals about gender and sexuality. And I think that that's really what ties the two projects together, even though I didn't I don't think I consciously thought of that as the time at the time when I went from one topic to the next. Did you find that when you did the um, research on your first book or the writing um, on the book about witches that you already found evidence of bodies in doubt that basically made it into your second book? I'm just really interested in the in the overlap in terms of primary sources there. Um, or was it different enough so that you actually had to go to very different places? Yeah, it was different enough that I went to very different places. There, um, the, the Salem trials, I mean, there's so much evidence on the Salem trials, and it's all typed out. Well, at the time that I was working on my dissertation and my first book, I was using um, these uh, published uh the published, uh, what are they called? The witchcraft trial records, which are published. Yeah. Now, of course, it's all digitized. So yeah. it would have been too bad I wasn't doing it now because it would have been so much easier to put in my keywords of the devil's book and, uh, you know, other, other key terms that came up in that project. But, um, you know, at the time I was using the, the published records of that. And the, the one little area of overlap had to do with monstrous bodies, um, because that, comes up during the witchcraft material, and it also came up in the intersex, but um, that was really the only place. Mostly my sources for uh, bodies in doubt came from published physicians, case records in, um, you know, in medical journals that that also have been digitized now. I mean, again, I, I, I don't think I could have written this book, you know, even 15 years ago before all that was happening because it would have been impossible to look through all the uh, the medical records to find a paragraph here and a paragraph there that's often not in the index. Right. Right. No, I mean, it must be a, an amazing journey of discovery, I have to say. I'm really impressed with that. Um, before we start talking about the meat of the book, can we talk a little bit about terminology? Yeah. And we'll get back to that a little bit later because in the epilogue, of course, you talk about the politics of terminology. But as you wrote the book, how did you make the decision about when to use the term hermaphrodite and when to use the term intersex? Well, um, that's an interesting question and something I gave a lot of thought to. But first, first, let me just explain to listeners who might not be familiar with any of this. Um, hermaphrodite today is generally not considered a good term to use for what I'm talking about. Um, and that's because it's seen as derogatory and 
it kind of connotes a mythical creature. When you think of a hermaphrodite, you think, mm-hmm. you know, half man, half woman. There's a there's a um, a picture in my book of a woodcut from the 16th century, I believe, that kind of shows this fantastical creature that's not even a person. And so I think that um, intersex people today, you know, don't want to be referred to as hermaphrodites because it kind of gives that image of a fantastical creature as opposed to an actual person. Um, right. You know, so, so the question then becomes, well, what term do you use? And, um, Intersex basically just means um, atypical sex development, any kind of incongruence between external genitals, um, internal reproductive anatomy, sex chromosomes, and hormones. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and and there's many different intersex conditions, but that's kind of an umbrella term that you know generally people agree to use this term. Mm-hmm. More recently, and we can talk more about this later. More recently, there's been a shift in the medical world and among some intersex people too, of calling this disorders of sex development or DSD. Mm-hmm. And this terminology was agreed upon um, in 2005 or six, 2006, I think um, at a conference. And I, I actually don't really like that term and we can talk more about why later, but so that term is still kind of contentious. Intersex as a term is a little bit contentious, but pretty much everybody agrees that hermaphrodite is not the best term to use in today's world. Mm-hmm. But, you know, my book is about the 17th century. It starts in the 17th century and goes forward. So I made the decision that when I was talking about historical, the historical material, I didn't want to be anachronistic about it. So if, right. if something is referred to as a hermaphrodite, um, or physicians are talking about whether or not hermaphrodites even exist, because this was a big debate. Does hermaphroditism actually exist? Because then I I made the decision to keep that language the way it is, mm-hmm. keep it more historically focused, and then show the shift from you know using hermaphrodite to using something more modern. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the big debates in this history is whether or not hermaphrodites actually existed. And so that raises the question, well, what was their definition of a hermaphrodite? Mm-hmm. Well, the definition of a hermaphrodite for much of this, of the period that I'm covering is a person that had a perfect set of male and female genitals. Mm-hmm. And they never did find a person that had that perfect set of female, male and female genitals. And so, Physicians would constantly be saying, well, there's no such thing as a hermaphrodite, but I did find the most amazing, uh, you know, the most amazing creature. And it's <laughs> important to kind of highlight those derogatory terms that seep in this medical literature. You know, words like creature, um, imposter was a very popular term that they used. Anyway, then they would describe a person's body. And they would say, well, it's not really, a, you know, this person, he or she, whatever pronoun you want to use, isn't really a hermaphrodite because there isn't a perfect set of male and female genitals. But it's about as close as we could get to a hermaphrodite. So maybe I will just call them a hermaphrodite. And, you know, here's what they look like. Here's what they did. Here's what I recommended they do, whatever. Um, so it's interesting that, you know, throughout a lot of the 19th century, 
18th and 19th century, this debate over whether hermaphrodites existed or not was so prominent, and everybody's trying to look for this perfect thing, which they never did find, because that really isn't how intersex works. Um, so they were just never going to find that. But they, they, they went so far as to even think if there was a hermaphrodite, if there was a person who had, um, you know, men's genitals and women's genitals, male and female genitals, would that person be able to impregnate themselves? They were very um, kind of really obsessed with sexuality. And oh, that's really interesting. Then they thought, well, if a person has a penis, yeah, also has, you know, genitals, then they could just kind of somehow get pregnant in and of themselves. But they never did find that. I mean, the other thing that I find really interesting about the terminology for this book is that, of course, I assume that hermaphrodites, at least during most of the time period you're talking about, did not self-identify as such. You're, right. So in this case, you're actually talking about terminology that others applied to them when I suppose that most of the subjects you're talking about identified either as male or female or maybe they didn't identify as neither, but they certainly, I assume, didn't didn't pick an, a different identification. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Yes, I, and that's a good point. Uh, yes, they absolutely would identify, would have identified as either male or female. And, I mean, which makes sense because that really is how our world works. I mean, even today, people who are intersex typically tend to identify as either male or female. Maybe the ones who are um, have kind of come to a political understanding of their, themselves might want to choose to also identify as intersex. Right. Um, but back then, people just identified as male or female, and a lot of them didn't really even know. You know, some many intersex people don't even have ambiguous genitals. Yeah. Right. So they might have, you know, been raised as girls, let's say. And from the outside, they look completely like girls and nobody ever expected any, you know, nobody ever thought anything was um, amiss. And then if a person doesn't get her period or never has children, isn't able to conceive, you know, that might have been a um, a, uh, a sign that, you know, perhaps there was an intersex condition going on. But, this, you know, again, before they even had the term intersex, how would they even know? They just might have thought that that person was not able to conceive, for instance, that woman mm -hmm. to conceive, not realizing that on the inside, the reason why she couldn't conceive was because she didn't have a uterus and ovaries and all of that, but instead had internal testes. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't until people were able to go into the body, physicians were able to go into the body and, and do, you know, tissue testing and other things like that, you know, nowadays ultrasound, um, that a person would even know. So, so yes, I mean, absolutely. They would have identified as male or female, and it was would, would have been the physicians who are labeling them. And, um, you know, if, if possible, maybe making some kind of surgical intervention, or if not surgical, sometimes um, just a matter of dress. Like there was a one case in the 19th century where um, the physician uh, – says to the person, you know, I, I think that you're, at, after doing some kind of physical exam, and I'm not even sure, I can't remember what brought that person to the doctor to begin with, um, 
But when the person was there, the physician said, you know, I, I think that you're actually more male than female. And mm-hmm. to change your whole, you know, my recommendation to you was that you change your whole identity and go on living your life, you know, can, from now on as um, as male instead of female. And the, the person, I, I don't know what the person said, they <laughs> <laughs> have those records. I mean, unfortunately, I have the records from the physician side of things. Right. But I know that the person must have balked at it because the physician then went on to say the person stubbornly refused, yeah. um, you know, my advice. And so, you know, they left the office and that was the end of it. But so that gives me a little glimmer into thinking, oh, there was some resistance here that people, of course, of course, if a person goes to a physician for some something else entirely and the, and the doctor says, you know, turns out you're not the gender you think you are. I think you ought to go home and change everything around. Most people probably would not want to, you know, they wouldn't really wouldn't want to do that unless right. they come to the doctor in the beginning for kind of permission to do this or, you know, or wondering what was going on with them and, and was hoping that the physician would say, actually, you're more male than female or you're more female than male. I suggest you do this. And then maybe the person would be happy with that confirmation. But I think for many people, when the do- when the doctor said something like this, they must have looked at them and I'm like, uh, you know, sorry, but yeah. I'm just going to go on living my life. It's too much trouble. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, this is great because this gets us right into the way in which people either perceived of themselves or others perceived of them. So maybe we can start um, by talking a little bit about Bodies and Doubt opens with a chapter about hermaphrodites, monstrous births, and same-sex intimacy in early America. So where did people first encounter hermaphrodites in early America, and what did they think about them? Yeah. Um, Early America, of course, was the hardest um, chapter to get information for because it was before doctors were writing their cases up in journals that were getting published, and so it's hard to even know where to look. Yeah. Um, but so this is and and so this is where the link, you know, that you the question that you asked me about before about were there any sources that linked to my first book? Um, there were some monstrous what what people what uh, ministers and medical practitioners in early America referred to as monstrous births. Mm-hmm. Um, and and those monstrous births have been written down. And it's hard to really know if those monstrous births were, um, you know, so-called hermaphroditic births. I don't really know. It didn't mm-hmm. go into that much detail about them. But it gave me the sense that... Um, it g- those descriptions of monstrous births gave me the sense of how a person who was intersex might have been perceived as well, because any kind of birth that wasn't a typical, you know, quote unquote, normal birth would have been seen as nature gone awry, or they would have seen um, providence or the diabolical monstrous mm-hmm. births, because, you know, that Providence and the diabolical kind of was their explanation for many things that went awry in, in early America. So when you found these very early sources, um, were they basically religious sources and legal sources, or who would write about them? Yeah, mostly religious sources and legal sources, exactly. I mean, so the um, the legal sources came up when in, in divorce cases. Okay. And... Um, so I, I read some of those divorce cases that are accessible to scholars, and 
you know, again, I'm not positive that this is what's going on, but if a person, if a, uh, a couple came to the court and they wanted to get divorced and the reason was that the husband was impotent. Right. And then they go a little further and the, the wife says, actually, we've, the marriage has never been consummated. He's not a regular man. Yeah. You know, that kind of language that suggested to me, you know, maybe there was uh, an intersex case here. Possibly. I don't really know, but it didn't really matter if it was or not. But what I was looking for was what they would have done in a situation like that. Right. Um, divorce was very unusual in early America, but you were able to get divorced um, in certain circumstances. And so I thought perhaps an intersex case would have been one of those circumstances. And it really depended. It, was, it wasn't completely clear cut. Sometimes they would sit, try to, um, well, there was one case, actually, I think this was a European case, um, where they tried to do some surgery really early, like in the early 18th century, um, because the, the husband said that he implied that he couldn't penetrate the wife, that mm-hmm. there's some kind of solid mass there. Mm-hmm. And, um, and in the end, they tried to surgically cut through that mass. It didn't work. They still made the people, they, they didn't agree to the divorce and said they should stay married. Mm-hmm. even though they couldn't have sex. But generally, the cases that I found in early America, they wanted people to be able to have families. Mm-hmm. And so if there could, if they could prove that, um, you know, that for some reason a family was never going to happen because they, they weren't able to consummate their marriage, then that would have been a reason to, uh, you know, to have a divorce and have the people go on to marry somebody. Well, at least one of the people go on to marry somebody else and perhaps have children. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was going to say something else about early America. Um, Medical or religious understanding? Maybe? Yeah, when you said about religious understanding. So there's yeah. also this idea that um, in early America that, this idea that if the mother imagined something during her pregnancy, maternal imagination, you know, if the mother saw, uh, imagined something during her pregnancy, that could cause a monstrous birth. So yeah. she, uh, this, you know, an example that was often used, you often see written about if she saw a rabbit run by while she was pregnant or a rabbit frightened her while she was pregnant, then maybe the baby would be born with buck teeth or mm-hmm. You know, there were things like this that actually lingered quite late throughout the 19th century, uh, even into the early 20th, mm-hmm. century, this idea about what the the mother's imagination could cause in terms of the baby. Um, so I was looking for things like that, and I was looking for um, sermons about, um, uh, well, having to do with what the, what diabolical influences could cause in people's lives. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was difficult in early America. Oh, the other place I looked for was um, kind of uh, the meaning of um, sometimes they wrote a, the meaning of of what atypical genitals could mean. So for instance, enlarged clitorises. Um, they 
uh, in early America, they tended to think that in, in this question over whether or not hermaphrodites existed, which they were discussing then as well, um, the, the answer sometimes was, well, there is no such thing as a hermaphrodite. These are just women with enlarged clitorises. Mm-hmm. And we have to be worried about this. So, again, this kind of took me from whether or not they actually found people like this. I couldn't find that material quite often. But if they did find them, what they would think was um, that these are people with enlarged clitorises who might use them for penetration like men. Mm -hmm. That signaled to me that, oh, what they're really concerned about here is not so much people with atypical genitals, but what those people with atypical genitals might do with those Mm -hmm. And if they're women and they're using them for penetration like men, what they're really worried about is uh, sexual relations between women. Mm-hmm. And um, and that actually, that the fears of homosexuality, you know, I saw it in early America. You can see it even earlier, not in America, in, you know, the Middle Ages. And you can see this going back for a really long time, which I didn't do research on this, but, you know, I've read other people's work. And you can see it up to the present day. I mean, mm-hmm. there are still one of the motivating, one of the unspoken yet motivating um, factors in medical intervention of intersex bodies, I think, has to do with the fear of homosexuality. Mm-hmm. I think that we we are not, uh, we haven't come that far away from this, you know, you can really it's highlighted in certain eras in my book. The late 19th century, I think, is uh, a time when it really starts uh, in a big way. But mm-hmm. we see it even today. Mm-hmm. Um, so the part about same sex intimacy in early America really comes in partly about that rega- regarding that big fear about um, the fact that two people of the same sex might engage in sexual relations the way you were just describing. Right. And and you can see that with, with intersex, one of the worries would be if people don't even know what, what sex they really are, then, you know, then, right. then they might get together with the quote unquote wrong sex because yeah. they're just so confused. They don't even know what sex they are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so at what point do physicians actually start writing about this in the medical literature? Um, they start writing about this. In the night, in the first, in the early, in the earlier part of the 19th century, mm-hmm. the first actual surgery that I found was from 1849. But people were writing about it uh, even earlier than that. But this case that I found in uh, 19, in sorry, 1849 was. Um, I was very excited to find this case. Cause, yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, um, and and because the physician went on in some detail about it, which is unusual. I mean, usually I would get maybe a paragraph, but to have, you know, a couple of pages on something was such a find. Yeah. Um, So this case involved a young girl, like a toddler, who had internal testes. And first of all, when you think about the the kind of surgery done at that time, how dangerous it must have been, you know, to, to go into the body on a young girl to find this. And yeah. with anesthesia not being what you might hope for. Yeah. Um, but we, I, I felt when I saw this case that her, this case had a lot to do with um, heterosexuality and the promotion of marriage. That's what the doctor was really concerned about 
in this case. Um, let me just see if I can find it quickly in my book and uh, read you a quote from it, but I don't know if I will be able to. Um, but this case really also um, kind of uh, paralleled what I was saying earlier about constructions of uh, womanhood and, and manhood, because one of the things that the doctor wrote is that after the girl in the beginning, when he, when she first, when the parents first brought her to him, was a very rough and tumble kind mm-hmm. of. She liked to play with balls. She, you know, ha- however they they imagined whatever they imagined boys would be doing in the t- at this time in 1849. This that's what this little girl was doing. And they brought her because they were disturbed by this, or did they brought, bring her for an unrelated reason? Let me just see what they brought her for now. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. I can't really remember what. Yeah, I don't know what they came from. What okay. For that's them. fine. Um. So the uh, they they the parents had always thought of her as a girl, and she had she was reared as a girl. They thought of her as a girl, and she had she did girl things, whatever girl things are, for the first two years of her life. Yeah. And she became, she, according to the physician, she began to reject her dolls and became fond of boyish sports. And then the, uh, the doctor was trying to, uh, you know, figure out what was wrong with her. When he did a physical exam, he found out what he felt was probably the root of her um, masculine tastes, and that was that she had ambiguous genitals. Hmm. So he was, um, you know, he was uh, worried about this because he thought, here's what he said, that, uh, oh, he also found um, inside one testes on each side. Mm -hmm. And he felt that if her testicles had been allowed to mature to puberty, this might spur masculine sexual desire. Mm Mm-hmm which would lead to, uh, which should lead to marriage, but since marriage could not be consummated by penetration, he felt, because she didn't have the capability for penetration, he felt that the testicles should be surgically removed. Mm -hmm. So after he surgically removed them, he found this. This is the part that made me really think, really, he noticed this, that after this, her disposition and habits, uh, her girlish disposition and habits became girlish again. She mm-hmm. took great delight in sewing and housework. <laughs> I mean, she was only a toddler. What kind of sewing and housework was she doing, we wonder, uh, rather than riding sticks and other boyish exercises. And he said that he'd seen her in the neighborhood, and she seemed just per- perfectly uh, perfectly girlish. Yeah. And so, you know, from... This, I mean, he's basically coming right out and saying this, that what he's really nervous about is who she's going to marry. Yeah. And if she can get married. And um, and this was a, a this became a common theme throughout the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was just he, he also said here that. He says he hopes to ensure that she would not be, quote, forever debarred from the joys and pleasures of married life an outcast from society, hated and despised and reviled and persecuted by the world. Mm-hmm. So 
you know, from his perspective, he's doing the right thing because who would want to have their child be hated and despised and persecuted from the whole world? Mm -hmm. And he considered his surgery a success and he wrote about it in a leading medical journal. And Mm -hmm. this is how I found my sources from these doctors publishing in the, in the journals. And, and he knew that he had done this radical medical intervention, but, and this is another reason why this case was so satisfying not every other physician agreed with what he had done. So some of them thought, you did what? Mm-hmm. They were just horrified by what he did. In fact, one person, one uh, the, the editor of the journal said that this guy's surgery was barbaric and that he might as well have administered prussic acid you know, on her to just destroy everything because, you know, that's how barbaric what he did was. So there were some people, even in the early, even at this time in in the 1840s, who would have advocated, you know, don't intervene, don't do anything. Nothing yet is actually wrong. You know, we don't know from the person's perspective if anything is wrong. Maybe if she wanted to get married when she was older, then you could go in and do some kind of surgical tinkering. But to to do this on a child who's not in pain, who doesn't seem to have any, um, you know, any necessity for some kind of this kind of interventionist surgery um, was not the right approach. So there were even people in the 19th century who were in disagreement over what the right approach to intersex conditions uh, were. And, and today, you know, this is still an issue today. Should you uh, try to fix, you know, quote unquote, fix an intersex condition? And I, I really want to emphasize that a lot of times the fix is um, is not really a fix. It's a cosmetic mm-hmm. fix and um, and sometimes does more harm than good. And, you know, of course, parents want to do the best things for their children and they want their children to grow up and live, you know, happy lives and fulfilled lives and, um, you know, and, and whatever that would mean to that person. Um, and, and so I can see how easy it would be for parents to immediately say, yes, let's go, let's go in there. Let's surgically do X, Y, or Z. Let's make everything right. Let's try to fix this and make the problem go away. But a lot of times the problem doesn't go away. And in fact, it's made worse by various surgical interventions. And um, and so I, I, I think that. I think that uh, that physicians really need to be honest with parents, and I think that parents really need to get in touch with other people who have gone through the same things as, you know, whatever their child has and, you know, really make an informed decision in ways that. The parents of this little girl uh, in the 1840s were not able to do, and they probably just did, you know, whatever the physician suggested because there was no way of finding out what other people did. In fact, these poor parents probably thought that their daughter was the only person to ever, you know, to ever have this. Yeah, which kind of phrases the question, um, how... Did the view of hermaphrodites change from the 18th to the early 19th century, and why? That, you know, so what were these parents essentially operating on, and, and what was the physician operating on in terms of his understanding? Because what you're describing right now is, on the one hand, a fear of deception, but also a pity for the girl 
mm-hmm. that she might not be able to lead a normal life. So as we move essentially from this idea of monstrous births towards a stage where we look at hermaphrodites in a different way, how do we look at them in the course of the 19th century and why does this change take place? Um, well, there's a few things going on. Um, and one ha- one thing that's going on has to do with um, the history of the way we th- thought of homosexuality. Mm-hmm. And so this physician was concerned that this girl wouldn't be able to get married. He didn't he didn't really articulate um, worries about homosexuality, although that, I think, was certainly embedded in his worries about heterosexuality. You know, these things are related. Um, but in the 19th century, the goal in the later 19th century and early 20th century, the goal of eliminating homosexuality starts to emerge much more explicitly. Mm-hmm. Um, and doctors even even more so than this guy he he was the earliest one but even even more so believed that surgery was warranted in most cases of atypical genitals not mm-hmm. necessarily for the health comfort or pleasure of the patient mm-hmm. at all but really to preclude the undesirable potential for homosexual sex mm-hmm. in fact even lifelong celibacy was preferable to mm-hmm. homosexuality Mm-hmm. And you know, that kind of boggles the mind these days. That mm-hmm. Doctors would actually um, be promoting this. There was uh, one doctor in 1896. I do have the page here for that. Um, Samuel Woody, his name was, and he said, "I'm going to read this quote because I, I just had to shake my head when I when I read this." He said, "So ill-fitted for the generative function." and so prone to psychical perversions and moral degradation, such cases should be castrated in early life. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, by the late 19th century, this the explicit promotion of marriage, which is what the earlier guy physician was advocating, had shifted to really uh, an often explicit avoidance of homosexuality. Yeah. And in the, in the context of surgery and atypical bodies, any discussion of morality, like this guy mentions moral degradation, any discussion of morality meant keeping sex heterosexual. Yeah. Um, and so I think the, the, the shift that you mentioned, what's, ha- what's happening here is that the, you know, the so-called hermaphrodite could be treated and normalized through surgical procedures, mm-hmm. which would culminate not only in satisfactory genitals, mm-hmm. physician's perspective, but in the performance of, um, you know, the suitable social role of marriage. Mm-hmm. And so there, there were, uh, you know, t- some things that they might do, like surgicals, t- surgeries typically offered to women might include opening of vaginal occlusion, which, you know, uh, would have been similar to the case I mentioned earlier in the 1700s mm-hmm. in Europe, where there was no vaginal opening, mm-hmm. testicular removal, or um, clitoral excision. Mm-hmm. And um, in my book, I have this... Um, picture of 
a uh, yeah, it's actually a, a photograph of a woman from I forget the era, maybe the twenties, mm-hmm. um, where it shows that she has an enlarged clitoris, which you know girls typically did not have an enlarged clitoris that was that could be seen visibly from the outside that looked like a little penis. Mm-hmm. And then in the next picture, after that clitoris is removed, mm-hmm. and the physician. Uh, argued that the 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 operation made her you know fitter mm-hmm. sexual penetration for mm-hmm. course for marriage, but really no discussion at all about the lack of sexual sensation that mm-hmm. would also happen when you remove the clitoris. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the kind; those are the kinds of things that were being done, and I think that the twenties and the thirties were a time of enormous experimentation. And uh, when you look at the doctor's cases here and the medical textbooks that, um, that talk about the kinds of surgeries and how to, how to do them and, you know, very intricate drawings uh, of how to do these various surgeries, surgical procedures. um, You can tell that the doctors, it seems to me, really don't know what they're doing and what Mm -hmm. the outcome is going to be. But they're trying it and they're acting very positive. Mm -hmm. Um, There's one case in particular that uh, just really kind of made me want to shout back to the doctors and and to say when I read this, leave the person alone. My God, like stop interfering with them. This person um, came to the doctor. They uh, for pain and groin pain, mm-hmm. um, they ended up removing what they either saw as uh, a small penis or an enlarged clitoris. They ended mm-hmm. up removing it and, and telling the person to go home and lift the girl. The person did that for a while then came back to the doctor a few years later saying, when I'm 18, I'm going to live as a man. Mm -hmm. And the doctors then did some more exploratory surgery and said, and found on the inside, some testicular tissue as well as ovarian tissue. So because Mm -hmm. there was that testicular tissue on the inside, the doctor said, well, okay, you could live as a man. But meanwhile, they had already removed what now that person probably would have considered his penis. And then the doctor wrote in the uh, under at the end of the case something like, um, "If ovarian transplantation ever becomes feasible, should we do it in this case?" And this was when I wanted to yell back as an answer, "No." The patient said he wanted to live as a man, so no. If ovarian transplant becomes possible, you know, do it on an animal or something, not on a person who has already told you that they want to live as male. Um, so yeah, that, that case would, uh, frustrated me. I think what's really interesting about this is that one can see the excitement about surgical possibility from the physicians. And I guess the one question I have there is whether the rise of sexual science and new perceptions of, um, on the one hand, homosexuality and heterosexuality and, and these emerging understandings of perversion and all of these things that happened in the late 19th, early 20th century, whether that intersected with the attempt to treat hermaphrodites surgically or whether the, whether the 
rise of sexual science really seems unrelated and the surgeons seem untouched by it because the exploration of the body and surgery is so much more scientific and exciting to them. Hmm. That's an interesting way to think about it. I, yeah, I, I think they, they're, I don't think they're unrelated. I think they actually are related. And, then the, and I think that these doctors probably, you know, yeah, they were aware of the sexual science and the advances that that field was making. If you want to call them advances or the, the, the trajectories that that field right. was going into. But they also were excited about the surgeries. But then another thing comes into the picture, which is important in this story, and that's the rise of psychology as a discipline. Yeah. And, you know, even though the surgeons are excited about surgical possibilities, um, that they, they were also excited about the role that psychology could play here. And so I think uh, that, that the 40s, when psychology becomes uh, more of a discipline, the 40s are actually a bit better because for intersex people because they were uh, the, the patients themselves were asked what gender they wanted to be mm-hmm. even though they weren't always taken complete uh, you know the, they weren't always taken seriously and they weren't always let they didn't always get to do what they wanted to do or at least they weren't always advised to do what they wanted to do but at least they were asked mm-hmm. um, there's one person who I write about in my book who went uh, she had something like uh, 27 or 28 different psychological interviews. She was saying she was female. And she wanted to remain female. The physicians were skeptical. She had 28 different psychological interviews where they, you know, just asked her again and again, uh, you know, all those different kinds of testings about what you like to do, what your hobbies are. And they came to conclude that she deviated in the direction of femininity. Mm-hmm. That's how they described her case. And they did let her stay female, even though, you know, she was saying from the get-go, I'm female, I want to stay female. Her parents were saying she's staying female. She was uh, older, too, like in her 20s, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, I, I think that the intervention of psychology was a good thing because at least it put the patient at the center more as opposed to what the surgeons felt that they should be doing in order to facilitate the person's life, um, which, you know, I, I can see they were probably doing it with good intentions, but still they, they were not giving as much due to the patient's autonomy as I think uh, later came to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, all these different kinds of, uh, all these things all these various ways of approaching uh, intersex patients were kind of out there. And then when the the story continued, when John Money came on the scene in the 1950s, he was a psychologist at Johns Hopkins, and he had a different approach, which really changed the field and um, and dominated the field until very recently, until the 1990s when his ideas were discredited. But his point was, rather than deal with all these difficult adults who had ideas, who had their own psychology about their gender, who who were living their lives as either male or female, you know, even if it was in a complicated way, they, they were living their lives as, as adults, he turned the attention to infants. Mm-hmm. They were so much malleable, more malleable than adults, you know, mm-hmm. because they haven't lived their lives as 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 grown ups and sexual beings. 
Um, and the, the theory at the time of, that John Money was writing was that babies were malleable in terms of their gender identity for the first 18 months or so of their life. Mm-hmm. And so you could sculpt a baby's, you know, surgically sculpt a baby's genitals any way you needed to. And you could raise them as either boys or girls and that they would adapt and be, you know, happy and healthy adults. Um, and this this theory of gender malleability was... Uh, was very um, popular, and you you know uh, you could see why people would like this idea. I mean, even feminists would like this idea because it's like biology is not destiny. You know, they yeah. that there was some malleability here, but the problem was that even though by the fifties physicians understood the importance of chromosomes and they understood the importance of hormones. Um, but they, under John Money's uh, guidance, really, they elevated the external genitals as the single most important criteria guiding the treatment of intersex patients. And so if you could cut away uh, an enlarged clitoris and make that baby more girl-like, um, John Money's idea was that this, that making the child unambiguous and giving the par- you know helping the parents to raise their child as an unambiguous girl or boy was the most important thing that you could do in terms of creating a healthy adult. Um, it's interesting because John Money's PhD dissertation was about this, and he he found in his dissertation that intersex people were remarkably psychologically well adjusted. Mm-hmm which seemed to him like so beyond common sense. Like, how could this possibly be? They had this ambiguity going on. How could they be so well adjusted? And he, he found that the ones who were raised um, unambiguously boys or girls, despite their genitals, the ones who were raised as either boys or girls uh, in a really firm way did the best psychologically. So this kind of translated into his, he should have just left well enough alone, in my opinion. You know, he should have just said, look, intersex people, if you raise them as either unambiguous boys or girls, they turn out fine and left it at that. But instead, he thought, no, you know, if you surgically help this unambiguous raising, if you, you know, surgically make make them so when their parents cha- or their daycare providers or whoever change their diapers, there's no question about what whether they're boys or girls, we can help that process. But it turns out that that those surgical interventions that he was suggesting actually were really damaging to a lot of intersex people who are now adults and who can talk about what happened to them. So how is the decision made um, who gets raised as a boy and who gets raised as a girl? Well, today uh, there, there's a... Um, There's a scholar who uh, has who teaches at Stanford. Her name is Katrina Carcasis. She's written a really good book called Fixing Sex. And she's also after she's a a medical anthropologist. Mm -hmm. Um, She's also written a lot of kind of guidelines for hospitals and teams 
today uh, for these teams to, uh, you know, to look at how to approach an intersex case. So today it wouldn't just be um, a pediatrician who decides or a surgeon who decides. Hopefully, if there was uh, a case that ambiguity was seen right at birth, they would send the parents, send the family to a, uh, a hospital center where there was a team put in place for this. Not every place has this because, mm-hmm. but, you know, some big places like Seattle or San Francisco, um, I'm from the West Coast, so those are the things, that's the place <laughs> to my mind. Um, and they would look at how the body responds to different hormones. Um, they would look to see what the chromosomes were. But I want to uh, caution, as I'm saying, what they would do, because this I don't want people to get the wrong idea that that there is one truly right answer, one true sex for every individual. And it's just a question of looking deep enough into the body to find that out because that really isn't the case. Like Mm -hmm. bodies are intersex bodies. And this is something that we have, we have a lot of discomfort with, I think as a society in general. So there's some conditions where, um, for instance, the chromosomes might be XY, which we, you know, supposedly we all know that those are boy chromosomes and girls have XX. But I know some people who are girls and have XY chromosomes. Mm-hmm. So it's not really a question of if we dig deep enough, we'll find the one true sex, which physicians have been trying to do since the 19th century. I think what we have to come to grips with is that there, there, we have more than two sexes. There's... Mm-hmm boys there's intersex and some you know people have uh, mixed markers in their bodies and it's not like there is just the one right thing so nonetheless parents and physicians do have to make a decision as to how to um, categorize a particular baby that that is born with you know any number of intersex conditions because we don't really have a category in today's world for an intersex baby. It's not like we have you know the girl babies, the boy babies, the intersex babies. We we don't have that. So you you have to choose boy or girl. And so what they tr- what these teams try to do is try to figure out what gender the child is most likely going to grow up happy as. And you know it seems impossible impossible right it's impossible um because you don't really know the kid is just a baby you don't know anything about how they're going to turn out and um but you might know that well babies that are born with this response to testosterone tend to turn out to be boys and are happy as boys and want to stay boys i mean you might know that you have to we basically have to do a lot more collecting of um data to see if physicians today are, you know, steering the parents in the right direction in this regard. Um, I think that it wouldn't be a bad idea for probably all parents to come to grips with the idea that your child, even if your child is not intersex, 
and your child is unambiguously boy or girl at birth and you raise them unambiguously boy or girl, your child might decide to transition for other reasons not even having to do with intersex. Yeah, I mean, I think there are a couple of things that are really interesting about this. On the one hand, of course, this idea that you do have to make a choice rather than having a child just grow up and then the child gets to choose themselves at some point when they become sexual beings and they want to develop a gender identity. I mean, the idea that you have to choose one in the first place somehow seems odd. And it does make me think about that case a couple of years ago, I can't remember where that couple came from, but there there was this case of this Canadian couple, I think, who refused to tell their child whether it was male or female, and people in the media were so angry about this. Yes, I remember that case, too. I, there have been a few cases like that, because I think there was another case where the couple told the child, but wasn't weren't telling anybody else. Right. I think maybe it is the same case. Maybe they weren't telling. No, they told the siblings and not I don't know if they told the child, but I do I do yes, I do know what you're talking about. I I, I don't think it's a good idea to make a social experiment out of a child <laughs> in general. But I I think that parents who, you know, anybody can turn you know, when they're older, can decide they want to transition. I mean, we've seen plenty of transgender people who are not intersex and yet who transition as adults. So we know this is a possibility in life. And I think that parents ought to be at at least cognizant of this possibility when any baby is born. Um. But when a baby is born, you might have even more of a, um, you know, obviously, you, you're not sure you're making the right choice. And so you you might do things to make the kid's life a little easier, like, for instance, give them a gender neutral name. I mean, that's a very small thing, but could turn out to be a very big thing. If the person mm-hmm. does transition, at least they can keep their name. And, you know, certain things that are social um, in our society, it, transitioning it might help with transitioning later on. Um, but I, most studies have shown that most intersex people tend to stay in the gender that they're assigned at birth, Mm -hmm. everybody, but Mm -hmm. most. And it's hard to know if that's because everybody chose right and they really do feel comfortable in that gender Mm -hmm. or if it's because transitioning is really difficult or they don't realize it's a possibility or, you know, it's hard to know what the reasons are for that. But you know, I, I hope it's because the gender that was chose for them at birth was the right one and they're content and, and, and you know, they might not be completely happy with everything that was done to them in the medical world, but maybe they're completely happy in their gender. And, you know, that's good. Because being unhappy in your gender is really a hard thing to live with. Yeah. Do you find that the development of treatments and surgery for people who want to change sex has an impact on the way in which the medical profession deals with the intersex? Um, it, it probably does. I, I haven't really thought about that. I, I think that, I mean, certainly the fact that the ability to be, to identify as transgender in today's world and to take steps to affect those changes has had an impact 
on the intersex world. I don't know so much on the physicians, but I know on on the on the people. Um, I, I know a I know of a young um, person who was raised female as an intersex kid. You know, the parents knew that she at the time was intersex, and now that kid is. Um, 13, 14, 15, mm-hmm. around that age, and wants to transition to become a boy. Mm-hmm. And the fact that there is that possibility, there's, you know, protocols for it, there's uh, there's a way to talk about this, there's movies and mm-hmm. books about this, for the kid and for the parent, has made it a little bit easier. I mean, it's mm-hmm. still really difficult for for everybody, for the child, for the parents, um, but the fact that it's an act, that it is a possibility and that it can be done is um, you know must must make things easier. Mm-hmm. In terms of what physicians uh, decide for these kids when they're babies, uh, I don't know if I don't I don't know if they're thinking that far ahead to an ultimate transition if they choose wrong. I think that they probably just think that you know really hope that they're making the right choice at, at the get go. Yeah. Hope that the kid doesn't have to go through that because yeah. Because transitioning is really hard whether you're yeah. intersex or whether you're transgender and and not intersex. It's just a hard thing to go through both medically and socially, and psychologically, and 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 it's a really big decision. So, yeah, that's a good so, question. <laughs> so tell us um, what you're working on now. Well, um, right now I'm working on I, I'm working on a, a broader book about genital surgeries, and I'm going to look at several different genital surgeries, um, including intersex, um, transgender, transsexual surgeries will be one. Um, castration, circumcision, and uh, female vaginal surgeries. Mm-hmm. Chapter that I'm working on right now that's on my mind is uh, circumcision, and particularly the history of circumcision in America. So I, mm-hmm. since I'm a historian, I like to start as far back as I can with everything. Um, and so I'm, I'm working on this history right now, although actually I'm not really start. I mean, I the chapter will look at the early period, but right now I'm working on material that has to do with the forties and fifties. And I'm looking at, um, how circumcision became, uh, so routine, you know, we, we call it routine circumcision and I'm kind of looking at how it became routine in this country and, uh, you know, spread beyond uh, Jews who do it for religious, you know, religious ritual reasons to, but, how it spread beyond that to the rest of the population that wasn't doing it for religious reasons, but were doing it for, um, you know, so-called hygienic reasons. Yeah. So, um, so it's controversial, and uh, and sometimes I just want to put my head down and come up with a different topic altogether. <laughs> um, so I don't, I don't know, but that's what I'm working on. I'm doing – I'm uh, – doing my research at the Harvard Medical School Library, which is fabulous, and uh, finding some interesting information. So we'll see uh, what it goes. I have to say that sounds like a fascinating project, and I cannot wait for that book. 
<laughs> Thank you. I, it'll be some time. It's you know, it's books take a long time to write. You know, and you, when this the bodies in doubt. By the time I I can't really remember the early the early years of gathering information, and I, I wish I kept a journal on my frustrations in the beginning of it because I know that they were there. But instead, all I can remember is towards the end of it when it when I was writing it and it was just flowing and I and I was happy with how it was going I can remember that but now I'm back at the beginning of another project and it just seems so hard to do like a mountain to climb and I I I, I wish I could rem- remember if I had the same feeling for my other two books that was yeah. anyway but well it was a pleasure thank you so much for being on the show you're welcome thank you for having me We have been talking to Elizabeth Reese, author of Bodies in Doubt, An American History of Intersex, which came out with Johns Hopkins University Press in 2009. I am Johanna Schön, co-host of New Books in Gender and Sexuality Studies. Please join us next time. Music